Uh, Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I wanted to take just a moment to thank those of you who have been praying for us. Roberta and I were not very sick, but it just dragged on for, for a couple of weeks. Hang on. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yes, wisdom literature um, and Proverbs. And Nick said we were covering nine chapters, but not uh, nine chapters in the next uh, two weeks. Um, we'll look at four and a half chapters this morning and four and a half chapters next week. The first nine chapters of Proverbs are a unit instead of being individual Proverbs. There's an occasional thing you could call an individual project, proverb, but they're mainly longer discourses uh, and essays and exhortations. Uh, it's a collection of longer discourses or essays rather than individual Proverbs. So they help prepare the reader. The implied reader of Proverbs is a young man and anybody else seeking wisdom, which we'll read in the prologue. But um, I've said it before and I'll say it again, uh, I think, in a few more notes, that I think it's not only acceptable but uh, important that though this was written for a patriarchal society, directed at young men, I think it's, again, appropriate but also a good idea to to consider that we're teaching our daughters this too, so sons and daughters as well as men and women. So they help prepare the reader the first nine chapters for encountering the collection of Proverbs in chapters 10, 29, which we'll talk about the arrangement of that. But on first glance, as I've mentioned before, the Proverbs in those chapters seem to be kind of random. They're not really completely random. And the narratives and reflections uh, at the end of the book in chapters 30 and 31. So there are two major thematic emphases in Proverbs 1 through 9. The first theme is that a strong and virtuous family life is essential and anything that threatens the home is viewed with great concern. Um, This is particularly important in this day and age, as they say, uh, because... At a very deliberate theoretical level now in, in Marxist theory, which is more influential than you might realize, uh, so-called critical theory and then it's child critical race theory, one of the emphases is the dissolution of the traditional family. This is considered a problem for Marxism and critical theory and critical race theory. Um, But it's considered essential and very important because, of course, that is the reality of the situation. 
that God actually made the family to be the basic unit of learning, teaching, and uh, social life in general. The father and mother are the primary teachers of wisdom and moral instruction. So I was going to ask if you have a Bible with you, either a print version or if you've got it on your phone or a tablet, I'm going to be reading several portions. I'm not going to read all four and a half chapters, but I'll be reading selected portions. And the first one I want to read is uh, Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. Listen to my son, to your father's instructions, and do not forsake your mother's teachings. It will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Now, I think it's important to read Proverbs on our own when we're older, and I would encourage you to do that as we're going through these series of lessons and also read Job and then Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon in the fall. But one of the key uh, things that Proverbs is is a primer for children, uh, for parents to teach their children uh, basic morals. A similar appeal to heed the teachings and traditions of one's father and mother is also found in six, chapter 6. And appeals from the father to his sons occurs at least 17 times. If you read through the sections, one through chapter 1 through 9, you'll see my son and my sons at least 17 times. At least that's how many I counted. <laughs> Providing, and it provides the major divisions to this section. Um, uh, as I pointed out, and I said I'd point out again, it's appropriate to extend these appeals from our sons to our daughters also. So it's, the Proverbs works. It's not the only thing that is, but it is, works as a primer, a, a, a beginning textbook for parents to teach their children how to live wisely and righteously and to have a life that flourishes and expresses shalom. We'll talk more about wisdom and the gospel uh, at a later date, but let me just say right now that although the, the gospel is not absent from wisdom literature and Proverbs, it's not the main emphasis. The main emphasis is living in accord with the way that God has actually made the world so that you have a successful and righteous life. Um, Anyway, often we do this intuitively. That's usually what we do, informally passing on our values to our children. And I would argue, and I don't know that I need to argue too strongly, that we live in a culture where this is no longer sufficient, if, if it ever was sufficient, to just do it intuitively and assume they're going to catch on. There are too many countervailing voices encouraging new generations not only to engage in destructive behaviors... Just listen to popular and rap music on occasion, but also to see the world in a way that is at odds with reality. Um, I read the news in the morning, you know, the digital equivalent of a newspaper, and one of the biggest things in the news now is the way that men who call themselves women are now dominating women swimming in the Ivy League. This, this is... It, it's just, it's like these people haven't read the emperor's new clothes. You know, that, that's not a woman. And uh, this is so at odds with reality. I admit to being befuddled how society could ever get to this point. But it has, so there's no point in denying it. So we live in a culture 
that not only encourages people to behave foolishly, which I'll mention in a minute is not simply silly or unserious, but also to live in a way that, that denies reality in a way that you would think would be obvious to anybody. So we need to be deliberate and explicit in raising up our children and ourselves with knowledge, understanding, and morals that reflect a biblical worldview and not the worldview that is dominant in the secular culture around us. The second theme um, is the uh, second theme in this section is that life is a path, which uh, is is not a huge stretch. Um, most people can see the relevance of this metaphor since we start young and we end old and we go from A to B and we end up at D. This metaphor permeates these passages and it recurs throughout Proverbs. There are two paths in life, the path of wisdom and righteousness and the path of foolishness and wickedness. And let me read chapter 2, 6, 5, 6 through 15 to highlight this. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you, and understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who leave the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong, and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways. The choice between these two paths is not indifferent. Uh, it's a matter literally of life and death on occasion. The opposition of the path of the wise and the path of the fool that pervades Proverbs is introduced right at the very beginning. There are two paths you can go by. Well, <laughs> but in the long run, there's still time to change the road, road you're on. I, I do think of that, and I was hoping to ignore it this time. Um, uh, and we'll say that's where the gospel would come in. So say you've been going on the wrong path. I lived, uh, let's just say, a uh, profligate and dissolute youth. Uh, uh, and then I was converted. And there was a radical before Christ and after Christ. So I was picked up from one path and set on the other one. There's still time to change the road you're on. We'll look again more closely at this theme in chapter 9. Uh, Nick said we're going to do nine chapters today. We're actually going to do four and a half uh, this week and about four and a half this uh, next week. So we will cover nine chapters in two weeks. Uh, in chapter 9, the two paths are personified as two women, each making their appeal to young men and women starting out on the road to life. And we'll, we'll look at those personifications in chapter 8 and 9 uh, next week. Uh, this is a basic outline based on 
the exhortations to from father to son. And this one is, uh, this outline, there's a lot of different ways to outline these nine chapters, is, uh, was suggested by uh, Dr. Dwayne Garrett with a few additions and exceptions. Uh, some outlines have up to 17 exhortations just based on the every time the term my son or my sons is said. But I think this is, this is a pretty good way to understand it. All outlines are a little artificial and that the, the writer of Proverbs did not start out with an outline and then fill it in like contemporary academic writers might do. So you have seven exhortations and then two uh, calls from wisdom. Uh, wisdom's first call uh, after the first exhortation and then finally wisdom's second call and the invitations of wisdom and folly. And then in, in uh, outline point eight there's digression on bad examples. This is kind of like a part in there that nobody knows exactly how to fit in. So it's a digression on bad examples, what not to be. Um, anyway, so the writer, let me go ahead and read uh, the prologue. Prologues is verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So the prologue was written by whoever compiled finally all the proverbs uh, and wrote the prologue. Solomon probably wrote most of chapters 1 through 9. And then he introduces it in this way, and he tells us four characteristics of biblical wisdom. First, it is practical uh, uh, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right. It includes common sense, which, as is said often, is not all that common anymore, and dealing with life's daily problems and enables us to navigate life successfully. Uh, children and even younger people and extended adolescents and older folks uh, need to learn how to actually deal with life successfully, uh, personally, socially, career-wise, etc. How to actually relate to other people. Biblical wisdom is also intellectual, uh, not in the sense of a distant abstract theorizing, but involving genuine knowledge and understanding based on a grasp of true reality. Um, and, th and that's really important. Uh, I've said it before and I'll probably say it again too. The Bible is not a book about religion, it's a book about reality. Uh, now the heart of reality, I will digress, um, is uh, the Trinitarian reality. The heart of existence is an eternal relationship 
of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of boundless love and endless joy. And all of creation is made according to that most basic reality and the structure that fits it. And so, for example, the example that Nick gave in his sermon about the the Amish community that forgave that horrendous act, and I remember that too, and I also remember how the, the secular culture was shocked that they did that. That actually fits with reality in a very profound way. And Proverbs is meant to guide us into understanding how to work with reality the way it actually is. Now, of course, that includes other people's flaws and sins and their failure to grasp reality. So we have to deal with the fact that we live in a fallen world. That is reality. Biblical wisdom is moral. It is concerned with what is right and just and fair. It's not cynical about simply getting ahead. And it leads us to embrace righteousness. Righteousness, as a matter of fact, while Proverbs is going to emphasize success in life, not always meaning just material prosperity, it's, all, it's going to say that uh, all things being equal, this will work out. However, if it doesn't work out, it's always better to be righteous. Finally, biblical wisdom is existential. Uh, this is a word that... Uh, Dr. Garrett does not use. I use it. Uh, And by that, I mean drawing us into mysteries of life and helping us to resolve or adjust to life's perplexities. Uh, By existential, I don't mean a philosophical perspective or a particular school of thought, but a focus on concerns and questions about ultimate meaning and purpose in one's life. I mean, you can be successful in the sense of having a, a good career and, and getting along with people, uh, even having a, a good family life, but somehow you miss out on what really is ultimately uh, true and meaningful and the purpose of life. Um. Uh, in verse 7, um, oops, I should have had that up the whole time. So in verse 7, we learn that the first principle of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, which I've mentioned before. The fear of the Lord means that God is constantly in the center of our thought and apprehension, and life is characterized by an all-pervasive consciousness of dependence on Him and responsibility to Him. We also learn that when our children pursue wisdom, (coughs) our culture will surround us with people pursuing foolishness and encouraging us to do likewise. Uh, Fools despise wisdom and discipline, and the world is full of foolish people. What, What can you say? In biblical terms, a fool is not merely someone who is silly or unserious. Um... You know, so immaturity in small children, even sometimes in adolescence, one wants to be careful about using the term foolish in the biblical sense. Foolishness is a moral category. It's a form of moral and spiritual deficiency. Uh, We'll look closely at the characteristics of the fool in comparison to the wise man uh, in our first topical study, which will be the week after next, the Lord willing. And in the, in the first exhortation from father to the son, 
And I'll have to speed up a little bit here because I know time is limited. Um, this is what we read. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give it into them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood. Let's waylay some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we will share a common purse. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their path. So apparently gang life was a problem even back in ancient Israel because that's, that's an apt description. So in the first exhortation, that was uh, chapter 1, 10 through 15, the father encouraged his son to maintain fidelity to the wisdom he has learned at home and warns him to avoid association with evil persons, particularly gangs and criminals. I say that, but the, the, I mean, the term thug life is not even derogatory anymore. If, if, you know, it's a rap thing. I'm, I'm not a, neither a connoisseur nor a, a good analyst of rap. Um, uh, the genre itself is indifferent, as most genre are. You know, you, you, you could have positive rap music. I've heard a few Christian uh, rap songs that I think are positive. I'm not fond of the genre, but that's, that's irrelevant at this point. However, a lot of rap is what's called gangster rap, thug rap, and now I've heard one called <coughs> drill rap. Drill meaning actually to shoot. So it's really about people murdering each other. Of course, this is, a, this is rather negative encouragement. Now, a lot of this, of course, is put on, but a lot of it isn't. Um, and it isn't, of course, just rap music. There, there is a pervasive um, influence that encourages people to, to live completely outside the bounds of respectable behavior. Um, and we're warned against that. This warning dovetails with the importance of training our children to avoid negative peer pressure in general, even if it's not so bad as encouragement to gang activity and other criminality, uh, there is still such thing as negative peer pressure, which needs to be resisted, as well as the immoral influence of popular culture in general. Not all, you know, I used to say that, and now I'm beginning to wonder. When we discuss popular culture when I was teaching high school, I used to say, not all popular culture is, is negative, and, you know, we're all going to consume popular culture. And, and the point is to exercise discernment. You know, at this point, I'm beginning to wonder if avoidance might not actually be the better because just when you think things couldn't get more degrading, they do. Um, uh, so degrading, as a matter of fact, that I can think of examples that I wouldn't mention in mixed company, and by mixed company, I mean me and any other person. They're, they're, so, they're, they're just awful. Um, I'll just mention Cardi B. Um, you, can, you can Google her. Um, wisdom's first call uh, in chapter 1. I'll read verses cha uh, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. 
In this first interlude, wisdom is here personified as a woman for the first time. And that'll carry through uh, throughout Proverbs 2, but with a major emphasis in chapter 8 and 9. The first call of wisdom is a warning not to reject her and the consequences of such rejection. Wisdom's cry in the public squares and noisy streets tells us that wisdom is not complicated philosophy or secret knowledge. Now, I don't have anything against complicated philosophy, but it is kind of a form of entertainment for, you know, people who like that sort of thing, which I would be one. So, not knocking complicated philosophy, but again, it's, it's, it's an acquired taste. Wisdom is not that. Wisdom is available to anyone who is willing to hear it. I went wise people, and I mean this seriously, not patronizingly, wise people who are not, they're, they're not uh, educated beyond high school, but they have a wisdom about life that, that exceeds uh, my own or many other people simply because they pay attention to to the Bible, to God, and to reality the way it is. Again, this is not an optional or indifferent choice. There are real-life consequences. Uh, verse 29 indicates that refuse wisdom is ultimately to reject God. And verses 32 and 33, the doctrine of retribution is clearly declared. Let me read verses 32 and 33. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of the fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear and harm. There is an emphasis in Proverbs um, that one receives recompense in this life, although there is still the recognition that that isn't always the case. Um, uh, that it isn't always the case will be the main emphasis of the book of Job. In the second exhortation from the father to the son. Uh, let me read an excerpt there, 2, 1 through 5. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. In the second exhortation, the father tells his son the benefits of seeking wisdom, imploring him to seek it as though it were the most important thing in the world, because it kind of is. Seeking wisdom also has its consequences. The first is that when you seek wisdom, you find God. Wisdom also bestows moral discernment and a strong sense of personal ethics. It will save you from evil men and evil women and their influences and bring you into the company of good men and women. Uh, verses 20 and 22 remind us that the doctrine of the two paths or two ways or paths in life and of the doctrine of retribution, the idea that one receives just recompense for his actions, whether good or bad. Um, and I'll have to skim over that chapter, too. We're to the next chapter. The third exhortation from father to son. I'll read a short excerpt there. My son, do not forget my teaching. Uh, in chapter 3, 1 through 6. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. 
for they will prolong your life many years and bring you shalom. Your translation probably reads prosperity or something like the word there is shalom. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That's one of those proverbs that makes its way onto calendars. And for good reason. It is really a very good principle. A truly wise individual recognizes his wisdom is always limited and that he should rely on the Lord for everything. Uh, on the right slide. Yes, here the father appeals to his son to follow the way of wisdom and maintain humility and faithfulness in relation to parents, to God, and to one's neighbors. The inseparability of wisdom and both devotion to God and love of one's neighbor is stressed. In other words, to be truly wise is not to be like some guru sitting on a mountaintop while disciples... I've just thought of all kinds of cartoons when I got that image. And, and, uh, and the one I can remember, uh, and I can't remember the whole thing, but basically the guru's advice is to Google it. Uh, <laughs> But true wisdom always involves devotion to God, love of God, and love of one's neighbor. Um, it's not just intellectual. There is an intellectual component. It's not just existential. It is relational, too. The one who follows wisdom will find shalom, security, and peace of mind. The interlude of verses 13 and 20. Um, I'll read a little bit of that. Um, In verses 19 and 20, By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge the deeps were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. This is kind of like a foretaste of a development of the idea of wisdom in chapter 8. So 13 through 20 is a hymn to wisdom stressing the value and reward of wisdom. In verses 19 and 20, we learn that God, by his wisdom, has made the world a well-ordered whole. And we do well to live in accordance with that order. The fourth exhortation from father to son. Um, Let me read uh, again an excerpt in chapter 4. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. And then he tells, the father tells a story about his father. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. The father pleased with his son to to heed the wisdom he himself had passed down to him by his father. You see this idea of, in, in Israel of passing down uh, devotion to God and understanding and wisdom from generation to generation to generation. And that's a really good idea, by the way, and we should continue to do that. The father embraces, uh, personifies wisdom as a lady of high esteem 
who honors and rewards those who are embracer in verses 18 and 19. The father appeals to his son to stay on the path of wisdom, which is like walking towards the rising sun, and avoid the path of the wicked, which is like walking down into a dark valley. In verses 18 and 19, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter to the full light of day, but the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. In verse, chapter 4, verse 23, he counsels the son to guard your heart, for it is the wealth spring of life. Uh, biblically speaking, the heart is not your emotions, per se. Um, we're told in this culture to always follow your heart, which is a bad thing. And Isaiah said in that context, uh, the human heart is deceitful and wicked who can know it. So, no, you shouldn't follow your heart in that sense. But the heart that he's talking about here is not merely our emotions or passions. The heart is one's inner being and character. It's who you really are, not who other people think you are, not even who you might yourself think you are, but who you truly are. And this is a reminder that the formation of character not just external obedience to the rules is the end and goal of seeking wisdom. Now I'm going to pause there, like right in the middle of this section, because... Hmm? Sure. Um, this is a reminder that the heart is one's inner being and character. It's not who and what we tru- it is who and what we truly are. This is a reminder that the formation of character, not just external obedience to rules, is the end and goal of seeking wisdom. You'll see a lot of encouragement in Proverbs to, to, to do what's right, to follow that command, to do this thing. And if you don't read through Proverbs carefully, you might get the idea that, that it's almost like a mechanistic external thing. It's not. It's about the formation of one's character. And, of course, the formation of character comes through forming good habits. And good habits, of course, are formed early in life. This is why, again, this works as a primer. That's not all that Proverbs is. Proverbs is for adults, too, and anybody who wants to gain wisdom. But it's important early in life to instill good uh, moral and disciplinary habits in our children. Um, I could think of examples I could tell on my own daughter, but I won't since we're, 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 we're coming up on time and I didn't ask permission, so I won't. Um, any other questions? And actually, any questions on anything so far? I know there was a, there was a long pause there, but we've gone through an introduction to wisdom literature in general, an introduction to Proverbs, and now the first uh, four chapters of Proverbs, and we'll look at the next five chapters next week, and then we'll do topical studies. Does anybody have any questions about anything we've covered so far? John? Was there actually a son he was talking to here, or, or is this just sort of metaphorical? That's a good question. Uh, if you assume, and I do, and not just an assumption, there are good reasons to assume that Solomon actually wrote this section. He, he probably didn't write the prologue, verses 1 through 7, but he probably wrote most of 
the first nine chapters. Um, he could very well have been talking to his own sons. But it's general enough, because no names are mentioned, that obviously we have a, we have a father exemplar and a son exemplar. We're meant to put ourselves in those places, either we're the father or we're the son, or we're the mother and we're the daughter. So did that answer your question? Okay. Uh, yes, Miguel. Uh, you mentioned shalom being translated often in Proverbs as prosperity. I had abundant welfare in the RSV. Right. I don't feel like that's what I normally hear shalom associated with. Shalom is, is most frequently translated peace, and then occasionally translated prosperity or abundant material welfare. But um, I could go back and look through my notes, but... Shalom, in the biblical sense, has a much more expansive. Shalom is living, I'm, I'm going to, this is kind of an abstract summation, but it's kind of living in accordance with the way God has made the world so that your life flourishes as God intended it, so that you are in harmony uh, and unity with yourself, you have peace of mind, with God and with others. That's shalom. That includes um, I realize that in this life, uh, some people live in awful poverty through, not, through no fault of their own. But God doesn't really want anybody to live in awful poverty. He really doesn't. And that's why, you know, James says, you know, if you see your brother or sister in need and you say, go your way and be warmed and filled, what good is that? No, you need to give uh, our brothers and sisters what they need. So there is going to be a sense in which shalom can never be reached fully in this lifetime because we live in a fallen world. But, but, but that's the aim and the goal. So the fullness of shalom will only occur in the kingdom of heaven. Yes, Joel. Uh, can you distinguish between uh, what righteousness means in wisdom literature? Oh, that, that, that's a good question, which I'm not completely prepared for. The question is, can you distinguish between righteousness uh, in wisdom literature and, and I guess elsewhere? And I guess you're probably thinking, let's just say Paul's letters. Yeah. And yeah, there is a difference. Righteousness is more of a moral behavior category in wisdom literature. Whereas with Paul, of course, it's a matter of right standing before God. The two are related, uh, but Paul carefully distinguishes, which you know, I've tried to make clear in the study of Romans, that the righteousness he talks about is a forensic understanding, a declaration of our right standing before God. In wisdom literature, and particularly in Proverbs, it, it is, it, that's not absent but the idea is actually uh, a path you're walking on and character you're forming. So there is a sense, so Job is called a righteous man. Of course, that does mean right standing with God. But he does all the right things, and he's actually seeking God. So did, did that help, Joel? Yeah. So there are subtle differences between the understanding of righteousness depending on the context. Of course, if you have right standing for God, you are being made righteous in your behavior. So that's what sanctification is about, which we can talk about actually in the Roman study. Uh, yes, uh, Micah. 
I guess this is an observation. It's, it's interesting to see that, that Solomon spends almost as much time saying listen as what he says you need to listen to him say. So it's almost like, and I think of that with my children. Yes, we do instruct them, but we also say, you just need to listen to me just as much as we actually are instructing them. So, yes. And I think about this at work. This, this is so helpful, by the way, so I just want to publicly thank you for this because I think about this at work, and I've got like 100 kids that work for me. And I, I often say, we have to say something eight times before they even know I'm talking. Like, I, Maybe that's so, a millennial thing, or what's after millennials, uh, Generation Z... So it, 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 is, it is fascinating that you said this is a book based in reality. I'm feeling it. Okay. I'm feeling it. <laughs> Good. And I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure that applies I'm not, to me. I'm not I'm trying to intimidate you. I'm hoping what me. you said was picked up on the microphone here. So, so I don't have to repeat it. Yes, Kevin. You're right. Um, uh, uh, just so you know, uh, Kevin had uh, commented on distinguish between foolishness and wisdom and and law and gospel, um, or the relationship between the two. It's not a one. It's not like law is foolishness and gospel is. But it it doesn't work like that. But there is relationship. But admittedly, um, Proverbs does not focus on the question of personal or even corporate salvation. This is this is Proverbs is written. Uh, it's not that fools are like left out like no you're just fools anyway there is appeals to fools there but it really is written to people who already are in uh, a community devoted to God so this is written by Israel for Israel Um, and how that we'll discuss in the fall actually the relation between um, (coughs) between uh, law and gospel and salvation and wisdom literature in general. Uh, Next week, we'll discuss a little bit about the relation between wisdom and the person of Jesus Christ because there are a lot of people who equate the personification of wisdom in chapter 8 with... with, uh, uh, I can't think of a... Is there a synonym for hypostasizing? Anyway, uh, a hypostasis of Christ, like, like a like a attribute of God uh, incarnate. Uh, I don't agree with that. Just so you know, um, wisdom personified in chapter eight of Proverbs is wisdom personified. Um, does it relate to Christ? Well, of course it does. Everything in the Bible relates to Christ, but not as not as directly as the question of the Logos or something like that. But we'll talk about that a little bit next week. Um, I think people make too much of the personification of wisdom. I digress from your question, but um, did that help any? I don't, um, yeah. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I, I think of Proverbs as being an act of righteousness versus a passive righteousness. Like We have objective words that come to us that God has, spit, has spoken, is speaking, and then Proverbs is all of us as little children running around trying to figure that out. And that's why there are different Proverbs, as you mentioned in the first week, that seem to contradict one another based right. on the circumstances. It's, 
Yeah, but it, it all comes within the wisdom of knowing that there is a God and we are not him. Right. So this is us running around not like God, <laughs> trying to figure out who he is. And, and one of the reasons, since you mentioned it, that some... Uh, <coughs> Um, morality is is not situational, but but wisdom is. Um, how you behave depends on who you're with and what you're doing. Sometimes um, it's eleven forty eight. I'll answer as many questions as you like. But um, does anybody else have any questions? Uh, next week we'll finish. Um, with the first nine chapters, and we'll discuss more about the relationship between Christ and wisdom, uh, and how these nine chapters prepare us for the rest. We're mainly going to do top. Well, we're going to do topical studies in Proverbs there's, because there's simply not enough time to go through it. So we'll do selections, and I'll pick out certain topics. They're, they're actually listed. We're still following the outline that was uh, first presented in the book, but of course the dates, you can pretty much forget about those at this point. Anyway, thank you very much.